right. Well, good morning, church. So it takes a right hip replacement to get an applause out of you all. I see what happens. All right. All right. Duly noted. I'll just go get another one soon. Um, no, it's good to be back. It is really, really good to be back. I spent the last week in Phoenix getting my right hip totally replaced. Uh, this was a, a picture of me before the operation. Now, a lot of people on Facebook responded and said, oh, so this was after Justin had already uh, had some anesthesia set in and some pain meds. No, this is actually before anything was put into my body. This is just the joy of the Lord and my weirdness pulsing through my face. Um, but incredibly fast recovery. I was walking out of the hospital within five hours after going under the knife. Uh, this incredible uh, thing that the, 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 the tests that they're doing on the kind of hip replacement that I got, um, they're showing 45 years and running on these kind of hips. And so for a 34-year-old, that's a really good thing. God has given some incredible minds uh, to us to do some incredible things in, in medicine today. And so I'm sitting up here today because of that. This is an excuse to be able to wear sweatpants and sandals before you all. Um, but, but also, uh, very soon, I'll be back up here. And with this new hip, I'm going to be able to do some flossing in front of you all. Uh, I think I'm going to be able to do the worm, uh, add a whole physical element to my routine, uh, which I'm really excited about doing, and that was the main reason I got the surgery in, in the first place. But um, I, I wanted to thank you genuinely from the bottom of my heart. Uh, the, the, the flood, the flood of encouragement, prayers, um, text messages, phone calls, Facebook messages. Didn't get me flowers. I don't know what's up with that, but... Um, Truly humbling, truly overwhelming uh, to see the love of the body, to feel the love of the body. So thank you all uh, for walking that road with me. And that really talks, it hits on exactly what we're talking about this morning in Romans chapter 12. We're talking about true love. And that's what I felt this week from the body of Christ. And it's what we're called into. As we go into Valentine's week, we say, what, is, what does God say that love really looks like in, in our lives? And, and we've been studying this book of Romans together, uh, which shows us the power of the gospel of Jesus. And to kind of catch us back up to speed to where we are today in Romans 12, you remember in, in Romans chapters 1 through 3, we looked at sin. We saw that all of us are, are sinful and therefore guilty before God, deserving nothing but his wrath, separation from him. We saw that his wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and sinfulness in this world. And then we saw, though, in chapters 3 through 5, the good news, that God didn't leave us helpless and hopeless, but he saved us. His righteousness was revealed. How are we made right with God in his sight? Through the person and work of Jesus, what he's accomplished for us on the cross and through the resurrection. But he doesn't leave us there. It's not just save you, get you out of hell free card. He wants to grow us. This next process that we saw in Romans 6 through 8 is what we call sanctification, becoming more and more holy. God revealed his holiness, how we become more and more like Jesus as believers, how we grow through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we looked at his sovereignty in Romans 9 through 11. And we saw that there's this wisdom that God reveals through his plan in Romans 9 through 11. 11, that through the very rejection of Jesus, when his own people, Israel, killed him, it was actually through that plan that he was going to offer salvation to the whole world, both to the Jew and to the Gentile. Mercy for all. And now we're in this final section here called service in Romans 12 through 16, the last five chapters. We're going to see the will of God revealed. What does he want? Now that we're saved, set apart to live life for him, what does he want us, desire us to live like? How should our lives look as believers? And we saw in verses 1 and 2 that he has called us to offer our bodies to him, to present ourselves to God as an act of worship, as a living sacrifice to him. And what he will do, it says, is that he'll transform us. 
He's made us into this new creation, and our lives will start to reflect this new creation that we've been made to in Christ. And we're going to see in these last couple chapters so a, a way that this new creation looks. We're going to see in this chapter how it looks in relation to God, how it looks in relation to ourselves, how we look in relation to others is what we're going to touch on today. We're going to see next week, this will be a fun one, what our new lives in Christ look like in relation to the government. There shouldn't be any controversy there. Uh, verses chapter 14, what our new relationship looks like to another brother or sister in Christ in matters of conscience, with stronger and, and weaker consciences. And then finally, in chapter 15, we're going to look at our new relationship to um, the ministry that God has called us to. But today, as we wrap up chapter 12, we want to answer this essential question. What does a transformed life look like? What does a renewed mind look like? If in verses 1 and 2, he says he's transforming us, he's giving us this new way of thinking, well, how do we flesh that out? Give us some practical steps, Paul, and what that looks like in, in our lives. And remember what he said at the, at the start of all of this, because it's easy to get this out of context if we don't, if we don't remember that he said our part, like, like putting a cake into an oven, our part is to present ourselves to God. Here is my body, here is my heart, here is my mind. His part is to do the cooking. His part is to do the transforming. Because otherwise, we can look at a list today and, and kind of take it like a legalistic checklist. That if I do these things, I'll impress God, I'll win him over. But really what we're going to see today is the result of a life that has been surrendered by faith to him. And we event, essentially, we are going to start to bear his fruit. This is genuine transformation from the inside out. We essentially become Jesus transformers, right? He transforms us into something new from the old man into, into the new man. But this is, and listen here, this is a transformation that happens in the life of a true believer. We will start to bear a different kind of fruit. We will start to look different. And so if there is no fruit in our lives, if there's no transformation happening in our lives, then how can we call ourselves a believer? How can we call ourselves a follower of Jesus? So as we read, I want to invite you to do a personal inventory today. Is this, is this what my life is starting to look like more and more as I grow as a believer? Am I bearing this kind of fruit? Am I transforming into this kind of person? It's God who does it, but it will take place. Now, these 13 verses today, it's a style of writing that's called a paranesis, okay? And this, this word, it's, it means it's a little collection of moral instructions. Like when you read the Proverbs, and you read a proverb, and you see all these little sayings, all these little kind of set of instructions, it was actually a very common writing in first century A.D., kind of that proverb style of writing. And we're going to see just a list of exhortations one after another in this verse. It's Paul's kind of practical guide of, of what it looks like to love uh, one another. But we have to be careful how we approach this kind of a text. And when we look at this, I just kind of jammed it up there on the screen, not to be read, but just to see the totality of this. There are over 30 exhortations in this little passage. And it'd be easy to think that we're just going to kind of read these things in 30 seconds and then bam, Go out this week and like through some weird spiritual osmosis, just kind of live this out. Well, because I read the Bible, I'm just going to naturally start throwing my love petals everywhere, right? And people, I'll just start naturally loving, start naturally obeying it. Just because you read it doesn't mean a thing. Tim Keller said it this way. He said, when we approach passages like this, these kind of proverbs, you know, you can't just read through a proverb, just bam, 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 bam. He said, proverbs are like the hard candy of the Bible, Okay. Now, here's what he meant. And because, I, just for the sake of the illustration, no joy of my own, I actually brought some Werther's Originals because they are the greatest hard candy known to mankind. Now, how do you enjoy, how do you properly approach a hard candy? Look, I'll show you. 
you don't just take the candy and just empty it into your mouth, right? Eat all of it at once, right? It's not good for your stomach, and you don't get full maximum enjoyment. Watch this. Slowly let it spin. The glory of this gold wrapper shining, glinting in the light. Then you take this beautiful little thing that God gave us, and you're popping in. And then you sort of let it sit there on your tongue. And the caramel just starts to just kind of melt and move into your mouth. And as you roll it around, you go to the left side, to the right side. Don't want any of your part of your mouth to be left out, right? Because if I bite into this thing, which I honestly have a tendency to do with hard candy, I just want to bite into it, chew it up, move to the next one. But I'm going to get so much more enjoyment and meaning out of this Werther's original if I let it sit there and kind of marinate in my mouth, right? I can suck on it. The longer I let it sit there, the more flavor I get out of it. Now I'm going to take it out or I'm going to be completely distracted here. Um, does anybody else want to suck on one of these while we're... Yeah, come on. I knew an alien would have his hand up. It's all the teenage boys and then, all right, all right, all right, all right. This is like, start, Jesus is going to start coming in and, and turning over tables. This is not, this is the house of the Lord, not free candy. All right, put your hands down. Um, look, see, see, my arms still work, even if my legs don't. Um, so, so what he's saying here is, when, when we read a text like this, he says, slow down and meditate on it. In fact, the Hebrew word for meditate, it was this onomatopoeia, which means it kind of says it like it sounds. It was to moan or to growl. And when a bear, like in, in, uh, in the Old Testament, they would see these bears who would take a f- piece of food and they just go, rawr, 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 rawr. and that was the process of meditating. Kind of out loud, as we read these texts, we say them out loud, and we slow down, and we sort of let our mind meditate or, or, or kind of sit on these Proverbs. And so what I'd ask you to do this week is not just blast through these 30 eggs exhortations. But take one of them, take two of them, and throughout the week, let it sit in your spiritual mouth like hard candy and say, Lord, what, is th- what does it mean? Like, what does it mean to ab- abhor or hate what is evil? What does it mean to not repay evil for evil, but, but evil with good? And what does that look like in my, my life? What does that mean, and how do I apply it? And that's where we'll see uh, the full benefit of what he's calling us into today. Paul's going to invite us, he's going to teach us about two things today in this passage. How to love a sibling and how to love an enemy. How to love a sibling and how to love an enemy. So let's look at this first one together. He says in verse 9, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. These 13 verses are, care, are if you kind of summarize them, he's talking about how to love. Now we're going to see a shift here, because a couple weeks ago we saw in verses 3 through 8, he was talking about spiritual gifts, but now he moves to love. This is a pattern of Paul's. We see this in 1 Corinthians. He does the same thing. In chapter 12, he starts this little talk on spiritual gifts, but then in chapter 13 he says, I got to pause here, and I got to remind us, the most important thing here is love. If you all have spiritual gifts, but you're not using them in love for another, it means nothing. You're a noisy gong. He says at the end of chapter 13, greater than your spiritual gift, better than faith or hope itself is love. When Jesus summarized the the commandments in the the Old Testament, he said it all comes down to loving God and loving other people. This is what we're called to. This is what we're called to do as believers. They will know we are Christians by our... Wow. So hard candy, you're all excited, but you don't know that song. All right. Well, we'll have to work it. By our love, by our love. That's the song. Okay. Um, so how do we, how do we love? Our, our love is to be genuine, he says. This is two Greek words. This whole phrase is just two Greek words. Agape and anipokritos. 
Now, agape, of course, is a word for love that you would probably recognize. And then awe, without. And then hypocritos, hypocrisy. He says, love without hypocrisy. Don't fake your love. Or literally, let your love be unmasked. Love for real. Now, if you've ever seen the, the movie The Mask, we see Jim Carrey being somebody who he's not. When he puts that mask on, he takes on this whole new set of personality. And he says, don't fake love. Be, let your love be genuine. Let your love be unmasked, not acting. Be the, the real deal. And Jesus, remember, he called out the Pharisees for being hypocrites in, in their love. He said, outside, your cup looks clean. But on the inside, you're dirty. Or he said, like a whitewashed tomb, you look pretty on the outside, but inside, you're dead. There, there is no real, genuine love in you. So he says, don't fake love, but really love as we are transformed by Jesus. So, so what does this mean? How do we love in a real way? Well, one of the principles here is that true love doesn't just talk, it acts. True love doesn't just talk, it acts. First John says this, dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let's show our truth by our actions. He says, if you really love somebody, you're going to do something, not just say something. Remember in James 2, he says, if you come up to somebody who looks like this, right, in the Alaskan winter, and they're frozen, and they're starving, you don't come up to them and say, be warm, brother. Be filled, brother. Right? Be clothed, brother. I love you, brother. See you later, brother. And then just walk away from him. He says, that's not love right? Just say, I love you, or even to pray for him is nothing. Because to love this person is to just to clothe them, to bring them inside, to give them a, a cup of tomato soup, right? To, to warm them up. Show them you love. Don't just say that you love them. Otherwise, it's hypocrisy. So as we suck on this hard candy this week, mull it over in our mind, who is God calling you to love, not just saying that I love them, but to show them that I love them by the way that I act toward them? But, but here's the rub, even right, even right action, if done with the wrong heart, can still be wrong, can still be hypocritical love. He's calling us even deeper. He says, I want you to hate what I hate and to, to cling and love to the things that I cling to and love. So the first principle here we want to look at in this passage is that true love has the right morals. True love has the right morals. Verse 9, he says, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Abhor what's evil cling to what is good. The word abhor mean, here, it means to hate or utterly detest. It's a very strong word. So we throw out hate sometimes. Like, I hate olives, which I do. I actually think God made those after the fall. That's my opinion. They don't belong on pizza. I have seen no purpose to an olive in my life whatsoever. However, do I hate olives? Do I utterly, well, maybe I do. I mean, that's a bad example. But <laughs> would I fight to the death for olives? Hopefully not, right? Uh, this is a strong word, and therefore, we have to be careful where we're aiming this hatred. We are never called to hate another person. Our battle's not against flesh and blood. What he says here is to abhor what is evil. The sinful nature, the evil in our hearts and in this world, we are to detest like God detests. See, this goes deeper than just outward action. To love like God loves is to hate what God hates and cling to what God clings to. See, God's love is truth in love. And this is different than the world's love. What our culture today would define as love is not how God defines love. Philippians, Paul prayed, I love this prayer. He says, my prayer is that your love may abound more and more. I want you to love more, but it needs to come with knowledge and all discernment. We're not just kind of like this ambiguous, I love everybody. There's a discerning factor. There's a truth element to love. 
that we know how to love well, which means we can also love poorly or not love. There's two different, two different uh, ruts that we can fall into here. We can, we can show truth without love, and we can show love without truth, and neither one is God's love. See, truth without love is brutality. I can walk up to somebody and say, you're fat, you need to lose weight. <laughs> you're stupid, do better at life. Now, is that true? Well, maybe, but it's certainly not kind, right? And if we say something that's true, but it's not done in a loving way, it can still be wrong. But we can go the exact other way, and we can say that we're loving somebody, but there's no truth involved. That's not any better. Love without truth is hypocrisy. And that's kind of our culture's definition today, that we don't, we're not supposed to tell anybody what to do, kind of let them do their own thing. But let me tell you something. If you see someone running in a direction that's going to take them hurtling off a cliff, it's not love to say, well, if running off cliffs is your truth, then who am I to step in and offend you, right? No. True love says, stop. You're going to kill yourself. True love full body tackles that person. And what we're called to here is to, well, true love looks at someone who's sinning and says, you need to stop it. You need to stop doing what you're doing because if you keep doing that, you'll die. True love hates everything that sin does, that it kills and it destroys and it defames the name of God. And true love clings to and treasures everything that breathes life and lifts high the name of Jesus. That is to be our heartbeat. True love has the right morals. Love's like God loves. Number two, truth lo true love has the right motive. True love has the right motive. Verse 10 says, love one another with brotherly affection. We already saw the Greek word for love, agape. Here he uses the word phileo, or where we get the, the word Philadelphia, right? Where Rocky lives, amen? Uh, the, the city of brotherly love. The kind of love that he's talking about here is a family love. It's a, it's a family love. So it's not based on merit, but on relationship. It's not saying, I love you because you've earned my love. You've done enough to impress me, to show you that I, I, I ought to love you. But I love you because you're my sibling, right? Simply because you're a brother from another mother. And I love you. And I'm going to be by you. It's like the beautiful words in the uh, ever-wise uh, movie Lilo and Stitch, right? Ohana means family. And family means no one gets left behind or forgotten. Why? Because they're family. And this is the way we're going to sing it after the sermon. The Father's love for us. Oh, how he loves us. Not because we earned it, amen? Because we're his children. That's why he loves, and that's why we are to love our brothers and sisters. Because of Christ's love for them, not because they've earned it. And then the kind of motive that we have in this love, based on relationship and not merit, is one that we're to take delight in. He says, take delight, the New Living says, in honoring each other, or outdo each other in showing one another honor. The heart here, he says, you should get giddy about this. You should delight in what? In honoring, in lifting up, in serving others, in making them look good, in meeting their needs, not your own. See, a hypocritical love is one that says it's doing what it's doing in order to honor others, but really it's honoring itself. Jesus called the, the Pharisees out for this as well in Matthew, 25, Matthew, Matthew 23, 5. He says, they do all their deeds, why? To be seen by others. He says they're doing good deeds, they're pretending to do it for others, but really they're just doing it for themselves. So like later on when we pass the offering plate, if you're like, here we go, thousand dollars everybody coming in the plate look how generous and selfless i am 
What's your real motive there? Not to give to other people. It's that other people would see how awesome you are. Or you're praying for other people on the, on the street corner. Um, there I go, thinking about other people again. I can't help myself, right? What are you really doing? You're honoring yourself. You're not honoring other people. He says, take delight in honoring others. That's God's heart. Number three, true love has the right methods. Has the right methods. Verse 11, New Living says it this way. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. See, true love isn't lazy. True love gets after it. And, and true love, it, it, it's enthusiastic, right? It's coming from the heart. It's a desire. And, and I love what he says here. He says, serve the Lord enthusiastically. Now, the context here is loving other people. But here's the beautiful truth. He says, whatever you've done, Matthew 25, whatever you've done for the least of these, you've really done it for who? For me. There is no insignificant ministry. Anything you've done for the least and marginalized person, you've done it for the Lord. To serve him enthusiastically. Number four, true love has the right maturity. There's a maturity that comes with this real love. It says rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. You see, false love looks at the right now. What's best for me right now? It seeks immediate gratification. There's no patience. There's no long view. It wants comfort. It wants all my needs to be met right in this moment, my way. Where he says true love takes the long view. True love has a hope. It says one day, one day in Christ, I'm going to see all my needs have been met and will be met in him. So I can right now, even though my life is going to be marked, if I'm following Jesus, it's going to look like tribulation. It's going to be difficult. But I can spend my time focusing on the, on the needs of others, being patient through my own difficulties, because I know there's a better day coming. And how do I get through that tribulation? Prayer. Constant prayer. Depending on him, not on myself. This is the maturity that love will bear in our lives. And the last mark of loving a sibling is that true love has the right ministry. True love has the right ministry. Because in verse 13, he's going to give us two examples, and they both have to do with giving. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So two ways of loving, and they both have to do with giving. Because at the heart of loving is giving. Giving is the essence of loving. Giving is the essence of loving. And again, this is the Father's heart toward us. How, how did God show us that he loved us? John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave he didn't just say, I love you to this world. He showed us that he loved us by giving his own son to die in our place and to give us a new life through his resurrection. That is putting your money where your mouth is. And he's called us to the same thing. To, to, to love is to give. And two things he calls us to give here. First of all, he says true love gives stuff. True love gives stuff. He says here, contribute to the needs of the saints. Now, the word saints here is talking about the, the holy ones set apart, our, our spiritual family. And he's saying here, you need to give, physically give, materialistically give to those who are in need. The world is going to most clearly see Jesus in us by the way we treat one another. They'll know we're Christians by our love. Thomas Manton said it this way, division in the church breeds atheism in the world. Division in the church, if we're divided, if we're, if we're not treating each other well, if we're not unified, if we're not giving to one another... The world's not going to believe that this God exists, that this Jesus is a real thing. What we've been called to is to love one another. Now, does this mean we don't give to non-believers? Of course not. But we put family first. You're not a good parent if your own children are starving and you're feeding the rest of the kids in the neighborhood. Right? We're called to love one another in our family, to meet the needs of those in our family. And I'll tell you what, 
beautiful example of this these last three weeks. Many of you know Anna Martin. Um, three weeks ago, she said, God put it on my heart to go to New Zealand. And it starts in three weeks, and I need $9,000, and right now I have zero. <laughs> I'm $9,000 away from my goal. And so she came, but she felt like the Lord was leading her in that, so she came up here on the stage. Well, actually, we did a video because she was too scared. Um, <laughs> but she shared her heart, said, I need, I need $9,000. She's putting this out there. And let me tell you something. You all loved a saint contributing to the needs of our sister, Anna Martin. And in under three weeks, we raised more than $9,000. And today, right now as we speak, Anna Martin is in New Zealand serving Jesus. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing what Jesus does, the way that he loves through us as we take care of one another. Real love gives stuff, but also true love gives space. It gives space. It says, seek to show hospitality. This word hospitality literally means love to strangers. In the first century, they didn't have hotels. And so when somebody was coming through uh, your town, people would, would allow these strangers, these, these passers-by, to stay in their home. See, we are called to love our, our own spiritual family, but also those from outside as, as well, to bring them in. Now, what does giving of our space and time entail? And it entails inconvenience, doesn't it? It's not convenient to let people stay in our homes or to, to take our time and our, our space. This last week when I was down in Phoenix, I uh, stayed with the Kaleli family. Many of you know Chris and Hannah. Hannah grew up in this church. Her, her uh, dad, John, was leading worship with us this morning. Uh, Chris was a preacher in our church for a couple years. About three years ago, they moved down to the Phoenix area. So it was sweet for us to be able to stay somewhere that cost a lot less than a hotel uh, while my mom and I were down there. And so as we're staying with the Kalelis, that's a major inconvenience for them to have an invalid taking up most of the space on their couch for over a week, right? And I'm a high-needs individual, right? And their kids can't come anywhere near me. They have to constantly remind them, don't touch him, right? He's hurt, right? Stay away or I'll spank you. Um, but that I would eat their food. I'm getting blood all over their sheets. Don't tell them. I think we got it out, but we'll see. Um, all these things that they, they put out for me and love for me. Are you willing? Are you willing to love others? even when, especially when, it inconveniences you. This is the kind of love that we're called to for, for our spiritual family. That's how we love a sibling. But the second principle is how to love an enemy. How to love an enemy. Because see, everyone responds to good with good, right? You give me a gift, I give you a gift. You hug me, I hug you back. That's all well and good. But how do we respond when someone wrongs us? To respond to hate with love, to respond to evil with good, I mean, that's something that doesn't make sense to the rest of the world. That's a distinctive of the Jesus follower. That's exactly what he calls us here. He's, he, Paul's going to show us what we do, what you're called to do when you're wronged. Four principles. First one is when you're wronged, do not retaliate in kind. Do not retaliate in kind. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse you. Do, do not curse them. Now, the word here for bless is eulogia, which means to speak well of. You might notice the word in there, the eulogy. What do we do at someone's funeral? We speak well of them. We praise their life and what they did over their time here on earth. He says, this is what you're called to do. When someone badmouths you, when someone gossips against you, when someone abuses you, he says, you know what your response is to be to them? Speak well to them. Speak well of them. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. If I don't respond with truth, if I don't point some, that out, they're wrong. If I don't make them pay for it, how will justice be served, right? That my calling here is to right the wrong. I can't let them get away with this. 
Well, this brings us to our second principle. When we're wronged, we let God balance the books. We let God balance the books. Down to verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Not, says the Justin. It is not my job to right the wrongs. There's a day coming when every human being will stand before the judge and give an account of what they've done. And every wrong will be righted. We do not have to take that onto our plate today. It's not our job. He will take avenge, uh, will take vengeance. And we can trust him with this. We can trust God with this. And thank the Lord through Christ that all of my wrongs were placed on him. Right? That's the only hope I have before this judge that they've already been judged in the person of Jesus. And this frees us up. And listen, we're not saying that there is no punishment here on earth, that parents don't discipline their children, that the government, we're going to talk about next week the role of the government in right and wrong situations. But he says, you're not to take personal vengeance on those who have wronged you. And this is the beautiful thing. This frees us up to do what he calls us to do next, which is so audacious. He says, when you're wronged, take the offensive. Take the offensive. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Because when your enemy, when those, the haters in your life, those who have wronged you, when they need help, this is a hard word. He says, help them. And in doing so, you'll keep heat burning coals on their head. Now, commentators are, are sort of split on, on what this means. It could mean that that's going to bring them to repentance. Uh, often uh, burning coals in the Old Testament is this imagery of judgment. So it's kind of repeating verse 19 that God himself will judge them. But, but one thing we know about the context of putting burning coals on a head in the first century um, AD was they would... The way you heated your food and heated your water was through these coals. And when you ran out, if you didn't have coals, you would walk a lot of times in this time. Oh, this is what burning coals could maybe look like on your head. Um, you would carry this container on your head and you'd walk around the neighborhood. And anyone who had some extra coals to spare, and they often lived in these kind of two-story homes, so they could look out their window. And if they saw you coming by with this container for your coals, you could literally heap burning coals onto their head, which would give them the fuel that they needed to stay warm and to cook their food and to heat their water. So this wasn't a bad thing. Like when we think of today burning coals on our head, that's not a good situation. But in this culture, what, what he's getting at, it's actually, it was, it was a blessing. And so what he's saying is even those who have wronged you, if they come asking for help, the word to respond with kindness and generosity. Last one, when wronged, do right. When wronged, do right. He says, do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. At the very beginning, he said, hate what is evil. We are to fight against what is evil. And to, and, but how do we do that? We do it in the way that our Savior did it. And how did he fight against evil? Jesus did not come to this earth taking other people's lives. He came to conquer evil by laying down his own life for us. This is exemplified at the cross. 
And Jesus' death is the greatest illustration of both man's hatred of God, and it's also the greatest illustration of God's love for man. And it's just this crazy combining. We're in the very act of man killing God. It's the same act. It's the same exact act of his loving kindness to save the very people who were killing him. And this is what you and I have been invited into as Jesus' followers, to love, not just like he loves, but to love with the love that he loves in and through us. To be willing to lay down our lives, not just for a brother and a sister, but for an enemy. Good example of this, there was a a Jesus follower in the military who had formed the habit of praying beside his bed before he went to sleep. He kept up this practice in the army, but he became an object of mockery and ridicule to the entire barracks. One night he knelt in prayer after a long and weary march. As he was praying, one of his tormentors took off his muddy boots and threw them at the boy one at a time, hitting him on each side of the head. Saying nothing about it, the lad took the boots and put them beside his bed and continued to pray. The next morning, when the other man woke up, he found his boots sitting beside his own bed, polished and shined. It so melted his heart that he came to the boy and asked him for forgiveness. And this led, after a time, to the man becoming a follower of Jesus. This is what Paul means when he says you're to overcome evil with good. Who's an enemy in your life? Who's someone who's wronged you? Who's someone who's hurt you, abused you? I'm not saying that's not real. I'm not saying that's not hard. In fact, on our own, it's impossible. But what are we called here? How are we called to respond to them? How did Jesus respond to us, his enemy, when we spat in his face? I want to end with three warnings, some pitfalls to loving like Paul calls us to live here in these verses. Three ways we can fail to love. First of all, we can fail to love when we're passive. When we're passive, um, the opposite of love isn't hate. There's still passion involved there. The opposite of love is, is apathy. It's apathy. It's indifference. When, when we just say we flat out don't care about the needs of others. And one of the ways this can happen is we become tranquilized by our own needs and we become numb to the needs of others. That we're not even thinking of outside of our own head. And so there are needs all around us in our homes and in our communities today that we're not even aware of. May we wake up from our slumber to see the needs of the people in our community and to not be passive. The other way we can fail to love is when we're preoccupied, right? Sometimes we've got our own agenda, and we're just too busy, we're too distracted, we can't be disturbed, we've got too much going on on our plate. We'll love in a different season, but not right now. But oftentimes we can be distracted by a good thing to the peril of a greater thing. It's like texting while you're driving, right? Texting is a good thing, but not killing yourself and a passenger or another person in another vehicle is even more important, right? We can get caught up in some of the minutiae and miss what God's calling us to. Pastor Larry told me this story once, and sometimes the strangest things are the truest things. Um, There was a a seminary class that he was in, and they had an assignment to study the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. And and the story, they were trying to find out its true meaning. Let's look at the cultural context, the textual context, blah, blah, blah. And so two of the students in his class decided to take kind of a unique approach. And so they took one of them, and he he wore these kind of ratty clothes and put on this cosmetics to kind of make him look like he was bruised and beat up and put some fake you know, blood on him, like some ketchup all over his, his body. And they laid him in the hallway of the seminary. And the, the, the classmates that had to pass him on their way to this class. And he said, and I kid you not, he said there was not 
And then the kid would like, he would sit there and pretend like he was hurt. Help me, you know, I'm dying, or whatever had happened to him in the seminary hallway. And he said that not one student even broke stride. He didn't tell me if he was one of the ones that didn't break stride, but after all, they couldn't be late to class to show their academic findings on the true meaning of the Good Samaritan. Are we too preoccupied with our own lives to not see the needs around us? Last one, we often fail to love when we're protective. Now, you might be listening to some of this and applying this to some of your own life, and you're going, man, you you don't know what I've been through. And we think about the risk of what it means to love somebody else, to put ourselves out there. Maybe there are some great insecurities that are holding you back from loving in this way. Maybe you've experienced some past failures and then the fear of what it looks like to be vulnerable, to be exposed or be exploited when we give to somebody else and they don't give back or they hurt us when we try to reach out. C.S. Lewis, he said it this way, to love at all is to be vulnerable. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to be sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around little hobbies, little luxuries, avoid all entanglements, lock it up safely in the casket of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, and airless, it will change. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable impenetrable, irredeemable. The only safe place, the only place, he says, outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. Listen, he says, there's a a risk to loving. There's an even greater risk to not loving. And we have to understand that in, this is a step of faith, to love other people in this way, to risk and and to know you're going to be hurt in the process. You're going to be taken advantage of in the process. You're not going to see this justice served right here in this moment. This is where we have to operate out of the abiding love of Jesus. That we're not pulling from our own resource here. If If we're not operating from the foundation of our identity in Christ, then we don't have any love to give in the first place. The only reason we can freely give and not receive anything back is because we have all we need in the person of Jesus. And this gives us a safe foundation to be able to freely love as we freely receive everything we need in him every single day. So here's my challenge to you this week. Take one of these or two of these exhortations and put them in your mouth like that Werther's original and, and, and mull it over and say, God, what does this mean in my life? How do I apply this? How are you calling me to love, not just by my words, but by my deeds this week? To my brother, to my sister, to my family, to those at my workplace, to my enemy, what does that look like? How is God wanting to transform your heart this week to make him more like Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you, that you say true love is this, not that we loved you, that you loved us and showed us that love by giving your son to die in our place. And it's only in the risen Jesus, that love, that heartbeat inside of each of us, that we are able to do what you've called us to do in this passage. Father, may we just simply present our bodies to you as living sacrifices and watch you transform us 
But then, Lord, you called us to take this step of faith. That presenting ourselves to you means offering ourselves in love to those around us at the risk of being hurt. Father, help us to find our identity in who we are in Jesus so that we might be free to love like you loved us. Lord, I ask that my brothers and sisters would take those action steps of faith forward this week. How are you calling us as your body to love other people around us, to give generously of our stuff, of our time, of our space, to respond to someone in a a godly way when they've wronged us, to give an enemy something to eat when they're hungry. Father, may, may we become enthusiastic about honoring other people because we know all of our needs are met in Christ. May the world know we are Christians by our love, by our love. This can only be done in the power and in the name of Jesus. We pray, amen.